message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Good morning again. It's great to be with you guys. About uh, a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I and our uh, two kids at the time moved to Mansfield, Texas, where we planted a church much like this one, and we met in a gym much like this one. And so it feels uh, like a little bit of a homecoming to come to a church plant. And I know sometimes it can be tough to be a church plant. Uh, Just ask the people that set up all these chairs uh, every morning. You know, they don't just appear here. Uh, And so ask them and they'll tell you, boy, I can't wait till we get our own building. But uh, this is uh, a rich time that I want to encourage you guys in and one that's God honors as he uh, knits you guys together as a church. And so it's a joy to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 65, our sermon text this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is actually printed for you in your bulletin. I know that you guys have been going through the Psalms this summer. And so we'll look at this morning, Psalm 65, which is a psalm that was written by King David and is a psalm of praise. Let's listen to God's word as he uh, speaks to us. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray uh, that you would illuminate to us, that you would help us to understand it, that you would show us how it applies to our lives, particularly as it encourages us and invites us into a life characterized by praise. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, I saw a t-shirt I've never, I'd never seen before. As I was walking out of HEB, a man in his 60s walked past me heading in with a black t-shirt on, and in white letters across the front, it said, apathetic agnostic. I don't know, and I don't care. I was a bit taken aback by it at first, a bit thrown off, but then I thought, you know what? This guy's, this guy's an honest guy. He says on his t-shirt, is proud enough to say on his t-shirt what a lot of other people in our culture are thinking, but are too afraid to say. 
In fact, uh, Gallup, uh, the survey company, conducted a poll not too long ago, uh, the same poll that they've run for 70 years, asking people how satisfied they are with their lives. And uh, they uh, found that less than four in 10 Americans say that they are generally satisfied with their life, uh, which was the lowest number they'd ever gotten in 70 years as they've run the same survey. And perhaps you've felt some of that as well with your own life. You may not wear a t-shirt to trumpet that apathy, but maybe you can relate a little bit to those folks in the survey. You've realized the person you married isn't going to significantly change in the way that you might have thought that they would. You have the same fights about the same things. Your job feels less and less meaningful every day. Inflation this year has chewed up all the gains in your paycheck that you may have gotten if there were any gains. You're here at church again because you know that's what you should be doing. You got the family here, but it, 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 even here, it feels a little bit flat. And you live in Texas in the summertime, it's hot, and you don't have a pool. Our text this morning is designed to help retune our hearts from that kind of discouragement, that kind of anxiety that Jesus mentioned in the passage that we just heard, that kind of uh, apathy to a life of praise. And I I know that you guys, as I mentioned, have been studying the Psalms for a while. So you know that there are lots of different types of Psalms in the Psalter. Uh, You've got Psalms of Thanksgiving, the Royal Psalms. uh, You've got all kinds of different Psalms. But this is the Psalm that's the most common type of Psalm in the Psalter, which is a Psalm of praise. What is praise? He says it right there in verse one. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. But what is praise? That's one of those church words we use all the time, but what is it? Um, it's, praise is expressing admiration and approval for something. It's roughly synonymous in the Bible with worship or glorify or honor or exalt or other words that we only see in the Bible like laud. Uh, kids, you may have sung the word laud before in these hymns and thought, what in the world does it mean to laud God? Well, it means to, to praise him, to glorify him, to honor him, to express admiration for who he is. And there's so many words in the Bible used to describe this phenomenon of praise because it's something that ought to be so common, so regular, so uh, a part of the fabric of the life of Christians that there, that there isn't just one word to describe it. It's many, many words. And so the big point, the big idea of this psalm is that because God is so great, we must cultivate a life that is characterized by praise, characterized by expressing how great God is. But how do we cultivate a life of praise? That's a big question I want us to answer today. How do we do that? And there are three things that I want us to see that we need to adjust in our own lives if we are going to cultivate a life of praise. We need to adjust our vision. We need to adjust our priorities. And we need to adjust our voices. It's our roadmap this morning. Vision, priorities, and voices. And I use that word cultivate a life of praise deliberately because sometimes we can think that, that growth in the Christian life is like a light switch that we just flip on and we go from being a person that may be apathetic to praise to a person that's automatically overjoyed in praising God. But it doesn't happen that way. It takes a, a whole lifetime of investing in small decisions every day that can help cultivate a life that is characterized by praise. And so as we move through our text this morning, I want you to see just small adjustments small things that you can do to cultivate a life of praise, just like you would cultivate a garden or cultivate anything else that you would expect to take a long time to develop. 
So first, uh, we need to adjust our vision. If we are going to cultivate a life of praise, we need to be able to see accurately. We need to be able to see the things that, that maybe we can't see right now. But I, what does David see as he looks out in the world in this psalm? Uh, he, in short, David sees a God who is present and active. A God who is present and active. He is there. He is near. He is powerful. He is working closely near to David in his life. And David is able to see that in a number of different ways. We need to adjust our vision to catch both what is visible and what is invisible. What's visible and invisible. If you look at verses 9 through 13, what is David seeing there? He says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. He sees a river. He talks about a river of God. He talks about watering these furrows. What's he looking at? He's looking at rain, right? And then later on, he talks about the uh, harvest, these wagon tracks that overflow with abundance. He's watching the people cut the grain and put it in wagons and take it away over to market. Uh, he also sees these flocks and herds that are on these hills. He's just, these are everyday realities for David. The things that he sees as part of his work. But did you notice the way that he describes them? He doesn't say, oh, it rained yesterday. And look, the harvest is tomorrow. Look at all those people taking stuff to market or, or look at all these sheep on the field. No, he, he sees God as present and active in those everyday activities. You water the earth. You visit the earth and water it. Your wagon tracks overflow. You clothe the hills with sheep and flocks. It's as if the hills around him are putting on a sheepskin cloak that God has made for them and given to them to wear. He sees God at work and active in his life. And it's not as if he sees God descending from heaven, but he sees these everyday realities that you and I see, but he knows that God is behind it and active behind it and providing for him behind it. So much of the Christian life involves being able to see with your faith which your eyes can't see, to be able to see beyond the everyday realities that everybody else just looks at and are just mundane parts of their life. And, and the Christian, uh, God has opened our eyes to see God at work behind those things. So we need to be able to see what's invisible and visible, but we, we need to adjust our vision in another way. Our vision should be able to catch both what is good in life and what's bad in life. Uh, if we want to cultivate praise in our life, we, we might be tempted to think, well, I just need to be a little bit more optimistic. You've probably read books like this or read articles like this or met people like this who so say, hey, look, if you want to be a more positive person, just don't think about all the negative stuff in your life. Just kind of get that out of your head. It's your negative thoughts that are keeping you down and you just need to think more positive thoughts. But that's not Christian praise. That's not the kind of praise that David offers here in this psalm. David praises God from the real world from the real world that you and I live in and the, and the difficulties that we face every day. Remember, David is a man who lost a newborn son. He's a man who was hunted by his political rivals. He's a man who sinned deeply against God, killed someone, committed adultery. And this is a, this is a man who can still praise God, because he, not because he just doesn't think about those things anymore, but because he's able to praise God through him. Look at verse three. He says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. He's talking about his own sins there when he says, You're in, when our iniquities prevail against me. Uh, he sees his sin as like an army that's, that beat him. 
that prevailed against him. Can you relate to that? You have sin in your life that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you've prayed against it, no matter how uh, long you've been fighting it, it still feels like an army that gets you down and puts its foot on your neck, gets the better of you. David knows what that's like because he's unfortunately given into temptation, but he says, God, when, when, that's, when and that's the case, when my iniquities prevail against me, when they beat me, you atone for my transgressions. And that's why he can still praise God because he knows the promise that he will atone for his transgressions in, in, the, in the same way that Christ has atoned for your transgressions, as Matt just reminded us. Not just your potential sins, but even the ones that get the better of us, the ones that prevail against us. And we need to adjust our vision to be able to see that. A few years ago, I uh, saw this uh, Instagram account uh, out of a guy from Bangkok, Thailand, who uh, showed us the, the importance of being able to see the things that you can't see. Uh, he shows in, uh, uh, in one picture, a picture that's very carefully curated, like most of the pictures you see on Instagram, right? They're, they're pretty, they're beautiful. It's like a person sitting on a beach that's just deserted or uh, someone with a laptop on their bed that looks really pensive and thoughtful and productive or uh, someone doing a handstand in a park. And then in the next picture, he showed what was outside the frame. And in the beach picture, the person that's sitting there quietly, it's, they've carefully cropped out the tractor that's pushing the pile of seaweed uh, up against, uh, uh, up down the beach. Or the person that's doing a handstand on the beach, they have got a friend that's holding their feet up on just outside the frame so you can't see them. Or the laptop that looks so peaceful and there right in the middle of the bed is, is actually in the middle of a room that's got clothes and, and trash thrown all over it like most of our rooms look, uh, quite frankly. And, but we don't, they don't show that. But once you, once you get the bigger context, once you see what's behind the picture, you're able to react differently. Instead of being like, man, I'm so jealous that person's on the beach, you can say, oh, that beach vacation looks like mine at Port Aransas with the tractor pushing the seaweed all, the, all down the beach. And the same thing happens with our ability to praise. What we see matters. What, and so I want to ask you this morning, what fills your vision as you look at your life? When you review your memories, when you evaluate your circumstances, and you dream about what might make life more satisfying, what's in the movie camera? What do you see? Uh, when you play back your relationship with your spouse, uh, all, the, all the years that you've been married, what, what are the scenes that get a lot of time and what has been clipped out and left on the editing floor? Are they, what, what are the main plot lines and the big scenes, the big defining moments? Are they, uh, are, are they full of the places where God has come and helped you in your marriage and grown your spouse and ministered to, to, to the two of you as a couple? Or is the movie one about disappointments and failure and failing to meet expectations, all the things that you wish would have happened but didn't. That's what you see. And so that affects your ability to praise. When you come to church, what do you see? A few minutes ago, we just sang uh, these words. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us, and now their praises fill the sky. Did you know that? that? That their praises, the ones who've gone before us, who have died in Christ, are gathered together here to worship God with you. Well, what, we, what, are, what we see are the, uh, the Mustang uh, banners on the, on the wall, uh, pastor dressed uh, you know, in a pair of jeans and cowboy boots. But, but what, do you, what do you see with the eyes of your faith? 
Do you see the saints that have gathered together to worship with you? Do you see the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven that have come together to gather in worship? That's what God says is here. Do you see it? When your paycheck hits your bank account, do you see that just as some other thing that happens in your life? Or do you see that as God coming down to provide you with your monthly bread? Placing that in your bank account. We need to adjust our vision to see what God wants us to see if we're going to cultivate a life of praise. But seeing's not enough, right? Some of you say, you know, uh, I, I, see, I see those things, but, uh, but there's something else that we need to adjust if we are going to cultivate a life of praise. And that is that we need to adjust our priorities. We need to adjust what we find valuable. Why? Because when you praise something, uh, you necessarily assign value to it. Think about it. When you uh, praise one product over another product, when you sing the praises of your new phone to your friends, uh, you see it as better than the other one, better than the older one, better than theirs, or better than the ones you've had before. You assign a value to it that's higher than the value that's around you. But uh, you may be able to see those, uh, you may be able to see that, but we need to be able to accurately value the things that we see. Uh, but our ability to do that has been damaged by our sin, hasn't it? To rightly order the loves in our lives. Uh, Augustine, who was a pastor in the fourth century in Africa, uh, called this our disordered loves. He said, you know, it isn't so much that Christians love the wrong things. It's that they love the right things in the wrong order. They love the right things in the wrong order. So if we want to cultivate a heart of praise, we need to reorder our loves. Uh, Arthur Brooks, some of you guys may know that name. It's, uh, he's an author and a speaker I really enjoy. He hosts a podcast called The Happiness Podcast. And so if you, whenever I'm feeling down, I tune into The Happiness Podcast. Uh, he's a thoughtful guy. But he, he says, uh, says this. Here's, here's the order that things ought to be. This is a simple way to remember this. He says, use things, love people, worship God. Use things, love people, worship God. But you see, we get that out of order, don't we? What do we do? We love things, we use people, and we worship ourselves. We love things, we, we, uh, we use people to get those things, and we worship ourselves. We get those reversed. But David helps us here to see the right priority of things. Look at verses 1 through 4. David begins this psalm by praising God for the, this communion that he has with him. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. To you shall vows be performed. He says in verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Notice the way that he refers to God as the one who hears prayer. He doesn't say God just hears prayer every once in a while. No, it's part of his character to hear your prayers. In other words, if he were to not listen to your prayers, he would be doing something out of, out of his nature, outside of his nature. And so it is, it is his very nature to listen to your prayers. And so David prioritizes that intimate relationship that he has with God to be able to bring his prayers to him and, and for God to hear him. And then in verse three, he praises God for the fact that his sins don't ultimately keep him from communing with God, that, that even when his sins prevail against him, that, that God atones for them so that he can keep David near. And in verse 4, he, sa- he says what it means to be blessed is to be chosen by God and brought near to dwell in his courts. David says the, the most important thing in my life, the thing that is central to who I am is who I am before God, who I am when I am with God, communing with God. 
then in verses five uh, through eight, he, he talks about God's acts in the world and what God has done to minister and to love people. Uh, look at what he says. His mind moves out there. He establishes the mountains. He builds a, a, a habitat for people. He stills the, the, stills the seas. He quiets the tumult of the peoples, of the nations, making himself the hope of people everywhere. His mind goes to the people that God is ministering to. And then in the last part, this 9 through 13, he, his, his mind moves to his things, <laughs> to the harvest and to the things that God provides him in order for him to survive. In other words, he places communion with God first in his heart and life. And only then is he able to look at the things in his life and to put them in a proper perspective. That's what Jesus was talking about in that passage in Matthew 6, when he says, don't be anxious about these things. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value? He says, you need to seek first the kingdom Seek first the kingdom and all these other things that are less important will be added to you. Use things, love people, worship God. But that's not a concept that's particularly new to any of you guys. You guys, if I were to ask you, what's the most important thing in your life? You would say, God, of course, right? But while we may be able to say the right order, oftentimes our lives don't reflect that. And so how do do we get this from what we say into our heart? How do we reorder our loves? That's not something that we can just snap our fingers and do. We know we need the intervention of the Holy Spirit to do that. And there's a lot that we could say about this, but I want you to notice one small thing in this text. David finds his satisfaction, he says, in the house of God. Look at verse four, in the holiness of your temple. Now for David, the temple, the house of God was the tabernacle. That's the place where he went to see the sacrifices, where he went to see the incense that that symbolized the prayers that went up before the people. That's the place where he went to watch a priest go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for his sins. And we don't have that, right? Because in Christ, all of those, uh, uh, the, the temple and all of the sacrificial system went away. But God still has a temple. He still has a temple. And his temple is the church. His temple is right here. Because God dwells in you. And then he gathers you together into a building, a spiritual building in which he dwells. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. The church is the place where we learn to praise. It's the courts of God for us. It's the house of God where he wants us to find our satisfaction. But how, how does that work? How does, that, uh, how does the church help us develop a heart of praise? Well, um, a couple of things to, to apply this. First, it, we should prioritize the church in our schedule, in our daily life, to be here on Sundays, to participate, to learn the songs, to pray the prayers, confess your sins and mean it. Say it, say the words and mean it. Uh, a young man at our old church came to me once and he was, he was dealing with a sin pattern that he was having trouble getting, uh, getting the better of. And he said, you know, he was coming, came to me looking for help. And I said, uh, I noticed that on Sundays, uh, he would worship outside the sanctuary. He'd be out in the narthex and I guess participating from there, but I couldn't see him. And then he would leave immediately after the service was over. And so I said, here's what I want you to do. For three months, I want you to worship inside the sanctuary, sing the songs, do all the stuff that we do. And then I want you to stick around for five minutes after church. That's all, five minutes. 
said, okay, and he listened and he did it. And he came in and he sat in the back by himself in the furthest, uh, furthest row back and he waited five minutes before he hit his car and left. But as, I, as the weeks went on, uh, I, I noticed him singing in ways that I had never seen him before. He was participating in ways I hadn't seen him before. And the back row became a couple of rows closer. And then the five minutes turned into 10 minutes because people found him and they started talking to him. And then the 10 minutes turned into 15 minutes and he became, got closer and closer. And, and uh, I found that this living stone that was kind of cast off in the quarry became a stone that was actually put into the wall of the church, of the temple. He became a, a, a real part of the body of Christ. And that's how being among the people and participating in the things that the church does can draw you near to God and communion with him. You can prioritize the church in your schedule, prioritize it in your budget. The best, best way to, uh, to show that you use things and that they don't have a mastery over you is to give them away. Uh, what could be more powerful than giving our money away to say to our money, I, I just use you. I, you don't use me. I don't worship you. Uh, we are uh, in the process right now of uh, moving our family overseas uh, down to Colombia. And uh, it's a longer story. I'll tell you after the service if you want to know. But uh, we are moving into a much smaller place. And so we're having to give away a lot of stuff. And it was something that we were kind of worried about. What's this going to be? How are we going to make these tough decisions? And uh, we found it to be one of the most refreshing and invigorating things we've done in a long time. Just saying, we don't need you. We don't need you. Give it away. In fact, we talked to a friend who had gone through that downsizing process a few weeks before we did when we were nervous about it. And she said, look, I did it. I gave it all away. And there's not a thing that I regret giving away. Usually, our, Jesus says our hearts, uh, our, our hearts, what, what we treasure in our hearts is shown in what we do. But the other, it can work the other way too. Sometimes when we, the things that we do can transfer back into our hearts. We can give away things and it can teach our hearts. You don't need that. Give it away. Finally, we can prioritize the church in our prayers. John Piper has written about uh, praying in concentric circles where he says, you know, pray for your own communion with God. Pray for the people that are closest to you, your family, the ones he's given you uh, accountability for. And then right outside of that, pray for your church. Pray for the names of the people that are sitting next to you. Pray for the names that are mentioned in the pastoral prayer as, as your pastors come up and your elders come up and pray for people. Have those, those burdens be your burdens. Have those prayers be your prayers, their needs, your needs. And you will find that as you pray for them, your, their praises will become your praises. So those are just a few ways that the, when David talks about the temple, about the house of God, how that applies in the New Testament to you as you prioritize the church, as you center the church in your heart and in your life. So we need to adjust our focus, our vision, what we see. We need to adjust our priorities and what, uh, what we value in our life, getting those reordered. And we've seen how the church can uh, be the instrument that we can that God can use to adjust those priorities. But there's one final thing that we need to adjust, and that is that we need to adjust our voices. We need to adjust our voices. Praise is an issue of your heart, right? What we value. But praise is much more than an issue of your heart. It's also an issue 
of your voice. Praise that is left unsaid, praise that is left unsung is not praise. We need to speak it with our lips in order to bring it to its full expression. Verse 1 literally says, in fact, you have a note probably in your Bible at the bottom that says, when, when David says, praise is due to you, O God in Zion, literally it, it says, praise waits for you in silence. Praise waits for you in silence. Picture this. It's like praise is sitting there like a guest at a surprise birthday party, sitting there waiting for the guest of honor to arrive before it erupts in surprise. That's the picture that David wants to get here. Praise waits in silence, but it cannot be silent once God arrives. It can't be silent once God arrives because God is worthy of praise. The text, uh, one of the quotes at the beginning of your bullets, and I want to read to you because it gets this point across beautifully. Charles Spurgeon says, does not all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I should be an exception to the universe. In other words, everything else is praising God. And if I'm quiet, I'm the one, I'm the odd man out because everything else is praising God. Does not the thunder praise him as it rolls like drums in the march of the God of armies? Do not the mountains praise him when the woods upon their summits wave in adoration? Does not the lightning write his name in letters of fire? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I silent be? We cannot be silent. We can't be silent because God has visited the earth. God has visited the earth, not just to water it, but to redeem it. He's visited the earth in Jesus Christ as he took on our flesh. The one who established the mountains, the one who built the mountains, took on the flesh of a baby so that he could become the hope of all the ends of the earth, the recipient of all of our praise. And so that the morning and the evening and the meadows and the mountains and the hills, the valleys, everything could praise Christ. We cannot remain silent in the face of such good news. And so friends, praise him. Praise him with your voice. Sometimes in church, we feel like, well, I don't want to be the only one that's singing loudly so that anybody can hear. In fact, my kids sometimes say, dad, be quiet. Don't sing so loudly. But put it into voice. Sing the praises of God. If you can't do it here, you're not going to do it anywhere else in your life. Doesn't matter if your voice is bad. Doesn't matter if you need singing lessons. Praise God. At home, when you're praying, say the words out loud. Oftentimes we think, well, God God hears me if I think it in my head. But God is a person. He hears our prayers. And so we ought to be able to say things to him. Sometimes saying things out loud makes them more real. When you say, I'm sorry for doing this, that's different than just thinking it in your mind, isn't it? Say them, adjust your voice. I'll finish with this. Yesterday, I attended a funeral for Grace Yonemiki. Grace's parents, Albert and Esther, are members of our church in Austin. And about two months ago, when Esther was about six months pregnant with Grace, uh, their doctor discovered that she didn't have any kidney tissue. 
And because she didn't have any kidney tissue, she had no amniotic fluid in the womb, and so therefore they told her that her lungs would not develop. And while she was fine in utero and alive and doing well, once she was born, because she didn't have any lungs, she would not live for very long. And yet Esther and Albert and the church prayed for a miracle, prayed for a misdiagnosis, prayed that, that God would, would intervene. Uh, but she went into labor last Friday and delivered. And after about four hours with her family, she went to be with Jesus. And at the funeral yesterday, I watched as Albert is in the front row with his hands like this, praising God as only an African brother can praise God. And I was able to see firsthand lives that had been cultivated with praise in the small moments, the small difficulties, the small disappointments that I know this family had been through, the violence they'd been through in their own country. They had, they had taught their hearts to praise God in those moments. And so when it came to the loss of their daughter, they were able to praise him. And they were able to praise him because they were able to see something that no one else could see. What we saw was something that you never want to see, a baby in a casket. But what they were able to see beyond that was the resurrection. They were able to see that just as Jesus was raised for her, she would be raised again in the flesh. They were able to see what they couldn't see with their eyes. They were able to prioritize. They had their loves ordered well because they knew that the life that she enjoys now is far more real, far more permanent, far more valuable than the life that we know here and now in the flesh. They put that above all else. And because they had done that, they could not remain silent in the face of the God who was the ground of their hope for their daughter. They gave thanks to God. They gave praise to God for the four hours they were able to hold her and then let her go to be with Jesus. Friends, God has given you and me and all those who will call upon Christ that kind of a hope. And he calls you to cultivate a life of praise in response to him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you for sending us your son to take on our weak and frail flesh to redeem us from the iniquities that get the better of us to redeem us from the iniquities of others that get the better of us and to deliver us into a life that is permanent and secure and full in ways that rain and blessing and growth and harvest and overflowing wagon tracks that we read about here in this psalm can never compare. So we pray that, this, that the lives here would be lives of praise, that this church would be a church of praise, that you would help each of us in our walk with you to prioritize the right things, to see the right things, and to respond with the praise that is due to you and due only to you. So that whatever you may bring us, whatever circumstances in which we find ourselves, we may see what you want us to see, and praise you for it. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.